Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We have talked about bail reform on this show many, many times. It was about two years ago now that the state's new laws on cash bail took effect. They largely dropped the option of cash bail for most lower level and nonviolent charges. And since then, the issue has become political. Opponents of the law, mostly Republicans, but some Democrats, have blamed it for New York's rise in crime during the pandemic. There's no evidence to support that claim, but there's also no research to refute it. So now, it's expected to again be a top issue in Albany next year. Governor Kathy Hochul said this week that she'd consider changes to the law if the legislature is open to the idea. And the context of that is important. Later in the week, she said she'd work on the crime issue with incoming New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who's already said he wants changes to the new bail laws. But I'll tell you, my friends, New York City has faced crime before. We've overcome it. And the fact that this was not a long slump into crime, it's a short spike downward, which means we can pop up quickly. And working with the city of New York, the new mayor, this is how we're going to get it done. And for this issue, politics could be key. Let's get into that and more with Zach Williams from City and State and Marina Villeneuve from the AP. Thank you both for being here. Great to be here. So this is the issue that will not go away, bail reform. And for good reason. I mean, we have the spike in crime statewide and particularly in New York City. And I think everybody wants to blame something for that spike in crime. And I think the natural solution for a lot of people is bail reform because it's the only thing that has really changed at the legal level, at the, at the state level, statute-wise. I'm, I'm interested how that's going to play out politically. And I want to go to you first, Zach. So Democrats in the legislature are, it, it's a slow thing, but there seems to be a wedge between them, between the more left and the moderate ones. And I'm wondering if this issue particularly is going to widen that wedge. What do you think is going to happen next year? Well, I think we're going to see something very similar to what we saw before the pandemic. In early 2020, right when these new laws on on cash bail, discovery, speedy trials were getting implemented, we saw a huge backlash, even before we really saw the consequences of them, um, both from Republicans and also very anxious, moderate lawmakers in swing districts, particularly in the New York City uh, suburbs on Long Island. Now, flash forward past everything happening with the pandemic, here we are in 2021, that DA race in Nassau County with State Senator Todd Kaminsky, a huge advocate of kind of rolling back some of those initial reforms, was just defeated so definitively by the Republican candidate who just ran a campaign solely focused on bail reform. And that's just really... Um, brought back all those same concerns from early 2020 that the Democrats have gone too far left in Albany with one-party rule, and now the Republicans are trying to score political points on that ahead of the all-important midterm elections Mm. on that issue. I think what we're going to see is, once again, moderate Democrats in the state Senate and in the Assembly banding together, pushing for some type of changes. Governor Hochul has already said that she's willing to at least talk about it, and of course, Whenever you have the governor and moderate lawmakers ganging up together on one issue or another, you got to take a look at where Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie is. He has been kind of the the most solid of the big three in Albany on holding the line on bail reform. But we'll, last time he wasn't able to hold it all the way. He accepted some changes, but we'll just have to see if it happens again that way. In a lot of ways, this is Speaker Hastie's legacy. He said when he assumed the speakership that he wanted a criminal justice reform to be his top issue. He wanted that to be his footprint in history in New York State. 
So I could see a lot of resistance there. And I think in the assembly too, even the more moderate Democrats still want to keep that bail reform law in some cases. We have people like Assemblywoman Latrice Walker down from the city who really doesn't want to make it a situation where judges have more discretion. And I want to turn to you, Marina, in a second. But I will say something interesting about Todd Kaminsky. In 2019, when these laws were being negotiated, I was covering them quite closely. And behind the scenes, Todd Kaminsky did not want to pass this bail reform law. He did not want it to go through. And he was trying to convince his Long Island colleagues to also try to block it. And then he supported the rollbacks. So it's just so interesting to me politically how he can have those opinions over two years and still have Republicans successfully frame him as somebody who is a big bail reform supporter. Uh, Marina, I want to go to you. And Zach alluded to this a little bit. So... How does this play in next year's elections? Is this a leg up for Republicans in terms of bail reform? Do you think that this is good ammunition for them heading into the general? Well, I think Republicans are pointing to some polling to suggest that crime is a big issue that's weighing on New York voters' minds, you know, from the suburbs to communities that are being hit by this violence. Um, so, uh, and we are also seeing a national rise in homicides as well. So I think that this is an issue that Republicans are going to be um, running on for sure. Um, and as you know, you mentioned, the, the supporters of the bill and criminal justice reform groups are pointing out that there's no um, research right now suggesting there's any link between New York's bail law and um, any sort of increase in crime. Um, so at this point, it you know sort of remains to be seen. Democrats are also trying to take steps to um, address gun violence. We have um, New York and surrounding states who are sharing gun violence data. Um, Governor Cuomo, um, then Governor Cuomo, he announced um, that the state was going to be spending millions on gun violence this summer, but. Um, the Times Union recently reported that uh, out of that initiative of spending millions, just 25 jobs were created, and it was supposed to create like uh, several thousand jobs. So, and there were supposed to be summer jobs too. Is the thing when the governor, when Governor Cuomo announced this whole thing, he was like, "We're going to give these young people summer jobs because if they have summer jobs, then they won't won't turn to crime." I mean, presumably, hopefully. And and I think you're right. I think when we think about elections, I think there's two big things that voters care about. Right now, at least in New York, I think it's the economy and I think it's crime because people want to be safe and they want to have money, too. Obviously, they want to have a living. So I, I'm really interested to see how that plays out. Well, one thing on bail reform that is a silver lining, if you will, no matter where you stand on it, is how it's clarified what newly elected Mayor Eric Adams wants from the governor. Um, he made a big splash down in Puerto Rico at the SOMOS conference saying that he viewed um, changes to bail reform as a top priority. And now we really kind of know what that means in terms of what he wants from Governor Kathy Hochul, which in terms kind of clarifies, um, you know, maybe a Carl Hasty is watching this and like, well, I give a little bit on bail reform, maybe I get something on taxes. So, mm. you know, everything is a lever. When you move one thing down, it moves something up. But in terms of bail reform, I thought it was very um, clarifying just that now we know exactly what Eric Adams wants to do with the so-called mandate that he has from New York City voters. There's going to be a real ugly, big ugly in March. <laughs> and Governor Hochul, too, you know, said this week that bail reform is a priority for her as well. Um, and with Eric Adams' comments about um, wanting to keep dangerous people off the streets, it's going to be an interesting conversation for sure about how you judge if someone is dangerous or not and the implications of that. Marina, sticking with you, we have about 45 seconds left. The Assembly Impeachment Inquiry Report, the investigation report that's that's been, you know, happening forever, it feels like, is going to presumably be released sometime next week or over the weekend. We don't really know. What do we know about it? Do we know anything? 
Right. I spoke with um, uh, Assembly Committee Member uh, Mike Montesano, who's a Republican yesterday. He said the report's about 45 pages long. Um, the law firm got about $5 million to write it. Um, he says that it finds that uh, Cuomo created a hostile work environment. Um, it finds that the allegations made by the female straight trooper and um, Brittany Camisso, the former executive assistant of Cuomo, found that those allegations were credible um, and found that Cuomo uh, did use state resources and staff um, to, for his book deal in violation of state law. Um, and the public should be expe expect to see it in uh, early next week, um, whether it's going to result in any fines or penalties to Cuomo remains to be seen. Yeah, that's the big question. I guess we'll see. Marina Villeneuve from the AP, Zach Williams from City and State. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Moving along now, elections in New York aren't always perfect. In the last few years, we've seen some local boards of elections fumble results and at times make it harder to vote. In a lot of cases, that's not on purpose. Elections can be tough and some boards just don't have enough resources. But now, there's a new effort to fix those problems while expanding voter access statewide. Senate Elections Chair Zellner Myrie released a report this week with some new proposals to reform the state's election system from Board of Elections to the voter experience. We sat down this week to go over those proposals and how they could change elections in New York. Senate Elections Chair Zellner Myrie, thank you so much for being here. Good to be with you. So you have this new report out about the election system in New York. It's very comprehensive. You had a hearing about this. You've heard from a lot of people about this. How do we fix our election system? But I think the question a lot of New Yorkers might face when thinking about that is, what's wrong with our election system? So can we start there? What do you see as the top problems in the state's election system? Well, we know after every single election, we end up in headlines for the wrong reason. Uh, most recently in the New York 22nd, it was the last congressional race called not in the state, but in the entire country. We've had counties like Rensselaer and Saratoga where early voting sites were not placed correctly, led to litigation, the attorney general had to step in. And of course in New York City, where we've seen mishap after mishap after mishap. Yeah. So the administration of elections, uh, it is the infrastructure of our democracy, how they are administered, how people feel when they go to the voting booth, how long they wait on lines, whether or not their absentee ballots are returned. A lot of those problems are structural. We have a commissioner system that requires bipartisanship in some parts of the state that has led to stalemate. It has led to no accountability. There's some operational problems. We don't train our poll workers. Right. We don't have a standard uh, standardization on what it means to be a commissioner. Some commissioners are full-time, others are part-time. So we went about 46 pages in the report, a lot of details in there, uh, but the top line is election administration is the infrastructure of our democracy. It's important that we do that in the best way we can. Now, as you're thinking about this, is this more of a problem with these local boards of elections, or is this more of like a state level law problem? Because I'm hearing about the 22nd con Congressional District, which was a mess. Mm -hmm. The New York City Board of Elections is a mess. <laughs> so where do you come at it from? So I think it's a little bit of both, Dan. We have a state board of elections that really does not serve as an oversight body for our local boards of elections. So you think about in the races where things have gone wrong, or if you're a voter in a county where things have gone wrong, who do you complain to about the Board of Elections? Ideally, you would have an oversight agency to say, hey, they don't have their act together, here are the penalties for doing so. 
We don't have that. So one of the recommendations that we make is that the State Board of Elections serve as an oversight agency, and if not the State Board of Elections, some other entity, so that there is accountability in the process. We also have to remember that many of our local boards of elections, they have a small staff. In New York City, it's a pretty big staff, but about 28 of our boards of elections, they have six people or less to run everything, voter registration, absentee registration, election day, early voting. And so they need more resources, they need training, they need standardization, and they need support from the State Board of Elections. Yeah, I was reading a story last year during last year's election, and I remember reading a story about this one um, Board of Elections, a local one, an employee who was saying that she was the only person handling these absentee ballots, and she was just getting hundreds a day. A day. So I can definitely see the staffing problem, but you mentioned in New York City they have a lot of staff. So what's the deal there? Why is this so messed up there? Why do we keep on seeing these problems with the New York City Board of Elections? So let me say that I know many New York City Board of Elections employees who go to work every day, and their goal is to administer our democracy in the best way possible. They do so in a good faith effort, but they're operating in a system where we allow for incompetence to flourish and that there's no penalty for that incompetence. And the political parties are the ones doing the hiring. Only in New York City are the Republican and Democratic parties the appointing authority and the thread through which accountability flows. We think that that should change. And that's really the basis of the discussion that we hope to put forward in the next legislative session. You know, in terms of beefing things up, in terms of staffing at the local level and possibly new laws or regulations, I can already hear the county saying that it's going to cost too much money and they're not going to be able to afford it. So what do you do about that? So we referenced this in the report. Uh, the need for resources is not a new claim. This is something that I've heard since assuming the chair, uh, chairmanship of the Elections Committee. Every year we have fought for more money for the local boards. And what I tell my colleagues is, if you think it's too expensive to give a local board the money that they need, you tell me what the price of democracy is. Mm. How much are you willing to pay for integrity and credibility in our elections process? And so we say, yes, we're happy to give more resources and to fight for that. But there also has to be some responsibility that you maintain that funding so all of these staffing issues that we're discussing won't be as much of a problem. You know, access to the ballot, is uh, the ballot box is obviously very important. And we saw uh, earlier this month voters rejected two amendments, um, no absentee voting and same-day voter registration. So given that, in your report you have many recommendations, but what are you saying should be done to increase that voter access because we don't have these constitutional amendments now? This should be a five-alarm fire to anyone that cares about our democracy. The fact that we had two pro-voter propositions fail, it's an outrage. The fact that it was defeated shows us that we have to continue the fight and we have to put our markers down and say, we're going to protect the voters' rights. That's going to be number one to us. That's going to be what access is about. It's just like customer service. You go to a restaurant, you have a bad experience, you're not going back. When we talk about administering our elections, if you have a bad experience voting, you're not going to vote again. Right. So in order to keep people to come back to say, this is your democracy, it's your constitutional right, we have to make the process as seamless as possible. You know, access to voting has somehow become a political issue where people think that reforms like you're suggesting may lead to voter fraud. And we're talking about election integrity. How do you convince people that that's not going to happen? It's not an easy job, Dan. We saw just last week with the propositions failing that misinformation is potent. And playing on people's emotions and fears 
as disingenuous as it might be, as I believe unscrupulous as it might be, it is effective. So we have to battle that misinformation with facts. The facts lay bare that voter fraud is not an issue in our elections, that you have a greater likelihood of being struck by lightning than for there to be an instance of voter fraud. But somehow, that has been able to flourish in our current conversation around our democracy. We literally had people storm our Capitol over alleged voter fraud. This is serious business. And so we have an obligation to put the facts out, make it as easy as possible. And really, my goal has been to take New York from worst to first. That journey continues, uh, and it's one that I look forward to pushing next session. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you come up with. And I don't think it's a discussion that's going to end anytime soon. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, New York, we fancy ourselves the progressive capital of the nation. We can't do so if we're not protecting voting rights. All right, Senator Zellner Myrie, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Myrie says he's coming up with a package of bills based on the report for next year's legislative session. In the meantime, another issue expected to come up next year is housing. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl. That's right. The 2022 state legislative session will address many issues that went unresolved in this year's session. One of those issues is affordable housing and, more specifically, a proposal called Good Cause, which would ban evictions without a good cause and institute a form of rent control. Activists were at the Capitol this week to garner more support for that measure. Tanner Malazzo with the advocacy group Vocal New York says that the system is not working for him personally. I'm, I'm sleeping on my friend's couch right now. I have a full-time job. I came out here to get my life together. I'm doing better. Still cannot find a place to live because landlords want background check, credit check. You need to make three or four times the rent. While opponents say the bill would actually reduce the number of affordable units, Senator Jabari Brisport says most opposition is rooted in misinformation. They paint this as saying we can never evict anybody, anyone ever. And the, 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 what, the, the, what the legislation does is in the name. It's good cause eviction. It strictly limits the reasons you can evict someone and limits rental increases. That bill is a part of a larger package that includes Section 8 vouchers as well. All of those measures will be in the spotlight early next year. All right. Thank you so much, Daryl. Switching gears now, 14 people have died this year at Rikers Island, New York City's massive jail complex. Some have died by suicide. Others are under investigation. And that's prompted a new conversation about the conditions at Rikers. There are about 5,400 people incarcerated there, and it's really important to understand that most of them have not been convicted of a crime. They're being held there before trial. And they spend more than 300 days there on average, according to city data. The city has a plan to close Rikers in a few years, but a lot could happen between now and then. That's why former Chief Judge Jonathan Lipman penned an op-ed in the New York Times calling for changes at the facility in the meantime. Aside from his tenure as the state's top judge, he also chairs a commission on closing Rikers and improving the city's criminal justice system. We spoke this week about the crisis at Rikers, what could be done to prevent more deaths. Former Chief Judge Jonathan Lipman, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. So we're talking about Rikers, and I just want to start with my thoughts on this situation. Something that's annoyed me about Rikers is that we have all of these state lawmakers and federal lawmakers visiting Rikers and then coming out and saying these conditions are awful, we have to do something. 
and then nobody does anything. And it's been months with that. So let's start there. Who should be the, the entity that should be trying to fix this situation at Rikers? Is it a team well, effort? It is, it is an ensemble uh, effort, but certainly the main player is the city of New York. But of course, the governor always plays a role in these things. And uh, the city council played a strong role in getting the approval of uh, closing rankers. So while it's an ensemble cast, it is basically the city of New York, which is responsible with the assistance and the state can always make it uh, easier uh, um, to get things done. And as you'll notice in some of the things I put out publicly, I've asked for assistance from the uh, from the state and the governor in addition to the city taking the steps that they need to take. So let's talk about the city first. So as you mentioned, sure. Rikers is going to close in just a few years, but I think everyone can agree that we don't want the conditions at Rikers to be awful leading up to that point. So from the city perspective, what can be done there to try to improve this situation, whether it's the overcrowding, whether it's the, uh, as you write, wrote in your op-ed in the Times, the, the mold, the, the disgusting conditions there, what can the city do? Well, I think what the best thing, the most important thing that they all can do, particularly the city, is to bring down the population of Rikers. Rikers is an antiquated facility. And, um, you know, there are a number of steps that should be taken to do that. And among them, and just in broad-based, and we can talk in more detail in anything that you, you want, is one, the court's hands are, are tied behind their backs right now is they need six feet of separation when they're trying to try a case, which literally makes them use three courtrooms to try, to try one case, and that is crazy. So that's, that's an issue that we need cooperation from the state and the city. We also need to, there are three uh, uh, prisons, two of which are unoccupied at all, uh, uh, altogether, in New York City that the state owns, that could be transferred to the city so we can put people, whether it be the mentally ill who need a different kind of help or women, put them there and uh, and and get them out of Rikers. Um, so those are the kinds of things uh, that need to be done. And while we're doing that, as you say, we need the city administration, the, uh, 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 the de Blasio folks and the new administration coming up, uh, in, Mayor Adams, to um, to step up the process, get the shovels in the ground and start phasing out Rikers so that by the closing date of August 2027, um, we're ready to actually close it down. But you can't do that unless the replacement for Rikers uh, is is in place and uh, and and uh, uh, can house the people who are now at Rikers. I hope we see something happen at least in the past few months, it, it's just baby steps to me. We have decreased the population just a little bit, not by too much, but it just seems like there's kind of a not appetite at the at the very level of actually doing things to fix records. Why do you think that is? There isn't then, it's, it's an inertia. And, and everyone points the finger at everybody else. And everyone says, yes, you know, we must, we must, we must. And meanwhile, nothing happened. But I think that um, the new mayor will put some new energy into this, uh, uh, Mayor Adams. Uh, and I also know that uh, uh, the Hochul administration is on top of this. And together, we've got to move it. And, and Dan, the issue is you're not going to fix Rikers. 
Right. You can tinker it around the edges. You can make it a little better. But the only thing you can do right now to get rid of this this danger to life, I mean, people are committing suicide left and right over there, is to get the population down because the facility itself is so antiquated. That's why we recommend smaller, safer, more humane local jails to replace Rikers with a different culture there. You also can't put the same Rikers culture and just put it in the boroughs. What you have to do is change the way we think about incarceration. What's the purpose of it? Why are we doing this? It's not to punish people, that's for sure. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about the Court of Appeals. If people aren't familiar, the chief judge heads the Court of Appeals as well as the state court system. We do have a vacancy on the Court of Appeals right now that Governor Hochul is expected to fill sometime soon. What kind of person do you think should be in that position? Given the the composition of the court right now, who would you like to see come in? What kind of lawyer or judge? Well, I think it's a good question, Dan. And, you know, they do have some excellent uh, candidates among the seven people who were nominated. Um, I think it needs to be someone who adds to the diversity of the court. By the diversity, I don't necessarily mean racial, geographic. It could be all of those things. It could be the type of experience as a lawyer. So without telling the governor what to do, which I didn't do when I was the chief judge, I certainly would do today. That's my recommendation, that it be people who add to these different viewpoints and different life experiences that go into when a person gets to the point where they're qualified to sit on the Court of Appeals. They keep adding things to the court that, again, reflect the well-being of all the people in our in our state. It's a really interesting time for that. So. We'll be watching for it, but we do have to leave it there. Former Chief Judge Jonathan Lippman, thank you so much. I appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Dan. My delight, pleasure to talk to you. So we'll see what the city and state do to address the crisis at Rikers. And just a programming note, we won't have a new show next week, but tune in for a special edition. We'll see you then. Have a great week and be well.